0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Good evening. And before we begin our study for the evening, um, happy Valentine's Day. How ironic is this? Ironic or maybe serendipitous or providential. I cannot imagine a better way to enter into a season of reflection Which is what Lent is, in which we think about the sacrifice of Christ in 46 days from today, the resurrection of Christ, than on a night when we're already thinking about love. Tonight we gather to talk about the truest, deepest, most pure form of love, which is the sacrificial love that we saw in Jesus Christ as he sacrificed his life, poured out his life for the sake of the world. And tonight, I wanna welcome you to our Ash Wednesday service. I'm proud of you for being here tonight, too. Uh, For some of you, this may be your very first time to experience Ash Wednesday. Today at noon, in our noon Bible study, we offered the ash to those who could not come tonight, and for a few, it was their very first time. What you're doing tonight, in addition to the singing and the thinking and the praying and the feeling, in addition to the listening, What you're doing tonight is a ritual that goes back many centuries and generations. You know, as early as the 4th century, Christians realized that if we're really going to marvel at the mystery of God's love as revealed in Jesus Christ, if we're really going to take into consideration the power of um, Easter weekend, well, resurrection is not something you just stumble into, right? It takes preparation. So 46 days prior to Easter, we begin a Lenten journey in which we enter a time of reflection and contemplation, confession, spiritual disciplines like praying and fasting and giving. We do these things to prepare the heart and to prepare the mind for that amazing moment when we get to gather in here 46 days from today and I get to say to you, He is risen, and you will say to the top of your lungs, uh, He is risen indeed. It's 46 days from today because The season of Lent is a 40-day period reflective of the 40 days that Jesus was in the desert uh, seeking to understand his true calling and his true self as revealed during that time of anguish and difficulty and temptation. Forty days, right? But the early Christians, as early as the 4th and 5th century, considered uh, Sundays too high and too holy and too worth a celebration to be fasting on those days. So it's 46 days minus the Sundays. That's the 40 days of Lent. So that's where we're on, and that's where we're headed. And and around the 9th and 10th century, they began to formalize this Lenten journey with a night like tonight, Ash Wednesday. And the, the, the Scripture that has been selected tonight is actually part of our ongoing sermon series on Sunday mornings. I deliberately chose the passages that we're going to consider tonight uh, to to land on Ash Wednesday. Because chapters 4 and 5 and part of 6 are really kind of Ash Wednesday-like passages. Because on Ash Wednesday, we gather here to consider our own brokenness, our own vulnerability, our own struggles, our scars, our sin our own disobedience our own propensity to live out of our false self rather than the self God designed for us that's what we do tonight and these passages Genesis 4 and 5 and part of 6 well they reveal how all of those things first emerged among humankind and how they still emerge in you and in me do you remember where we've been thus far For the first two chapters, we recognized in Genesis that God had an idea to make himself a world, to make a universe, to create existence in such a way that we might enjoy perfect union with one another and with God. The blueprint, the design that God imagined when God imagined forth um, existence was that out of God's own sense of identity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God existed in this kind of perfect union with God's own self, where the Father was um, uh, serving the Son, and the Son was serving the Spirit, and the Spirit is serving the Father. And in this spirit of mutual submission to one another, this this community of love and grace and mutual service, out of that nature, God pours forth creation, hoping that the thing that God creates looks and acts and behaves like the nature of God. We were designed to abide with one another in that same kind of union, living in the image and likeness of God. We are intended to pay attention to each other, to love one another, to mutually submit to one another and serve in such a way that there's this beautiful harmony or integration between us and between God, and we call that Eden, Eden. And in Eden, we watched God as he he scooped up out of the clay the creation of humankind and breathed into them the life, the breath of life to make them living beings. And they lived in this perfect, perfect union. Do you remember God saw the first man and said, it's not good that he is alone, so I will create a helper to rescue him, a rescuer to come to the aid. And we watched how community came to the rescue of isolation. And everything was beautiful and glorious and harmonious. In fact, the Hebrews have a word for it. It's called shalom, harmony, peace. But then chapter 3 happens. Chapter 3 always happens, (laughs) doesn't it? I mean, just when things are going well, chapter 3 always happens where there's always a tree with the fruit that we're not intended to eat and from the sound of the first crunch of forbidden fruit until now we have been struggling to put back together the thing that became dismantled and unraveled in Eden. So, this past Sunday, we looked at what that looks like. Adam and Eve now expelled from the garden. And we took a look this past Sunday at what life is going to look like east of Eden post-fruit and we saw Cain and Abel being born. And we saw the first fratricide. And we saw a glimpse of what life east of Eden is going to look like. It's going to be filled with violence and division and cover-up and trouble. Well, I'm here to tell you that the rest of chapter 4 and 5 and part of 6 continues in this kind of spiral in which, in which the design that God had in mind continues to spiral into this kind of decay And debauchery, the sense of a mess. Now, there are some things that unfold in these chapters that are pretty interesting. In fact, we're introduced to civilization, to the beginnings of civilization as civilization develops and societal evolution unfolds right before us and peoples become organized with one another. There are, in these chapters, um, genealogies, for example interesting things about these genealogies because they have people in them who are really really old i mean really old hundreds of years and you and i look at these stories and we say well my gosh why did they live so long then and not now but perhaps we asked the wrong question the writer's intent may have been not to tell us how old people lived back in the day but rather that this was the first time to imagine that they don't live forever They have neighbors in religions that told stories about kings and nobles who lived forever and ever. And our story says, nope, nope. East of Eden, we have limits. We break, we stop, we're made of dust, and to dust we return. And there are names that are given in these genealogies. And and for the most part, it helps us make a bridge between Eden and the, the story about Noah and the flood and so forth. But there are interesting names And these names reflect, in many ways, what we we think of, some scholars believe are eponymous names or eponyms that that describe not just persons, but whole peoples, civilizations. So, in other words, we see the rise of art in these chapters, 4 and 5. The rise of art as a vocation. We see music, metallurgy. We see, for example, a person named Jubal who... Introduces the harp and the lyre. But we recognize that it may not just be Jubal, but Jubal may represent an entire civilization. So, in other words, the people of Jubal, the sons of Jubal, the daughters of Jubal are they who introduced music as a vocation and as an art. It's not just that Tubal Cain, which is one of the descendants of Cain, it's not just that Tubal Cain introduced uh, the use of iron and the use of um, uh, particular metals. Uh, iron and and so forth, but it was the people of Tubal-Cain, the civilization of Tubal-Cain, who began to work in the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, right? When you really begin to think about the power of that statement, it begins to back the camera up, and you see these passages in a much more profound way. It begins to open up and expand. And the beauty of this, though, however, is not. In anything I just said, the beauty is this. If you back the camera up, and you widen the angle on these chapters that we're looking at, what you recognize is that the design that God had in mind has now spun out of control. It's spun out of control, and no matter how developed they become, no matter how sophisticated their society had become, they had not lost their proclivity to sin, their, their propensity to be selfish and violent and domineering and aggressive In fact, in some places, it's almost as if their propensity to evil and to sin and disobedience grew in proportion to their sophistication. Which in many ways means that we just keep on getting better at behaving bad. We do. We keep getting better at behaving badly in the trouble with living in what we think is an advanced culture, either then or now, is that we assume we may be able to advance our way out of that thing that stays um, crouching at the door, ready to pounce. A sense of sin and evil and debauchery. And the trouble is, it's not that we're able to avoid it. It's that we're able to mask it better. And maybe there's no one verse... And all of these chapters that describes that level of of decay and that level of struggle, that level of departure from God's original design, then Genesis 6 verse 5, and here we read these words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart now this coming sunday we're going to talk more about that verse and beyond about what does it mean that god would have a heart that would be grieved but tonight i just want us to keep in mind that sometimes the design unravels the vision falls apart always has and yet in the midst of these chapters that we're overviewing tonight, chapters 4 and 5 and part of 6, there is one verse that kind of emerges in the midst of all of them that kind of leaps off the page and serves as almost a reminder of a kind of a defiant hope. A hope that in the midst of all this decay, perhaps we're not ruined after all. Listen to the words from Genesis 5:28. When Lamech had lived 102 years... He became the father of a son. He named him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed now because of this decay shall come relief. Can I get you to think with me for just a moment or two more about that word ground? Because in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the word ground repeats prominently. It emerges again and again. Do you remember that when nothing existed except this watery chaos, God blew over the watery chaos and and caused the dry ground to emerge? And that's good. And then God kneels down into the the dirt and, and scoops out of the ground the clay to form the first mud man. And that's good. And then God takes the first man and places the man on the ground in the garden and says to him, you're not here for no purpose, you're here to till it and to keep it. In other words, in Hebrew nuance, it means to love and care and nurture and serve the earth. So that out of the ground, things grow. Things that are beautiful and good and ready to eat. And so he does. And out of the ground, there grows all these trees, both good trees and bad trees. Trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food and trees that are off limits. See, the ground produces both. And then we move past chapter 3, or at the end of chapter 3, and we see after everything unravels, God says, Now the ground will be cursed, the ground. And you will till it, and it will not produce for you. And there will be thistles and thorns, and it will be arduous work for you. Then we turn the page, and it's chapter 4, and there's Cain, who says, the text says, that he is made to be a tiller of the ground. And then he Commits the first fratricide. Kills his brother. And the Lord says, what have you done? Because I can hear the blood of your brother crying out. Because the ground has opened it up to swallow your brother's blood. What have you done? And it continues all through the rest of the 11 chapters. This recurrence of the word ground. As an image that is meant to to stoke and provoke our, our imaginations for faith. Because when we step back to think about it. Ground is that which can produce both that which is beautiful and that which is broken. The ground can produce that which is good and that which is bad. <laughs> that which is lovely and that which is ugly. Out of the ground, both can emerge. And on a night like tonight, it occurs to me that you and I are made of this stuff. We're made of the same stuff that the ground the dust the clay the earth the ash it can do both good and bad beautiful and broken and and inside each of us there is that same clay and we can describe ourselves the way the ancients did that we're scooped up out of the clay or we can talk the way the learned do today that we're all made of carbon but either way it's the same stuff out of us can come both beautiful and broken Lovely and ugly. (laughs) We can produce words that build up or words that tear down. There is in us simultaneously light and darkness. Fresh water and brackish. Sheep and goat. And on a night like tonight, we're, we're especially aware of it, aren't we? Because when we gather around and we, we read scriptures and we think about mortality and we think about how we have a particular lifespan, it occurs to us that we are really both at the same time. We have a true self and a false self and both fight to see who will win the day. Paul talked this way. Paul said, listen, I feel this war inside me. He says, it's, it's like there are some days that I wake up and I do the things that I don't want to do. And I say the things that I want to say, and I think the things that I don't want to think, and it frustrates me. And then on the other days, I don't do the things that I want to do. I don't say the things that I have been wanting to say for a long time. I don't think the things that I try to think throughout the day, and and it's it's killing me. It's tearing me apart. Can you sense what I'm after tonight? I want you, my beloved sisters and brothers, to feel the twins that are in you, the true self and the false self, that in the ground of your being, in the, in the soil of who you are, there is something in the, the clay calling you to acknowledge that which takes life and yet yield to that which gives life. And in the text that we read, there's this one verse that gives us hope, right? It says that out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, our relief will come. And the Genesis writer is attempting to talk about Noah, because here comes Noah, and here comes the story, and we're going to have some fun with that over the next few weeks. But when you and I listen through the ears of Christian faith, we recognize that out of the ground comes our relief too. For Jesus was made of the same stuff that we're made of. He was born of a woman made of clay, made of carbon he was. Same struggles, same temptations, same twins within him, the true and false self. That's what the desert was all about. He was crucified on a cross. And he was laid in a borrowed tomb. In other words, he was placed in the earth, the ground the ground but Easter our Easter proclamation is that resurrection means that he overcame the ground he overcame the earth he rose up and became a victor over death itself we read things like this in Galatians we read Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us As it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, this cursed ground that we read about early in Genesis. Jesus becomes the curse in order to overcome the curse for us. Second Corinthians, we hear it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is why we do the imposition of the ash. This is why in a little while we're going to place um, the, the imposition of the ash upon your forehead or the back of your hand in the shape of a cross. And we will say to you, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. But we place it in the form of a cross because, yes, we need to remember that we are dust, but we also need to remember that we are more than dust. That we have been made more than dust by the one who overcame the earth, who overcame the ground. Some days I wonder, what do I need to hear more? Do I mostly remember on most days that I'm dust, I'm just a failure, I'm not good enough, I can't, I can't, I can't step up to the thing that's in front of me. I'm, I'm dust, I'm dirt, I'm ash, I'm nothing. But I need to be reminded that I'm more. Or on other days, do I? sometimes think I am more than I ought to think and need to be reminded don't get so big for your britches because you are dust. Maybe it's both. And maybe that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 these words, we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. And when I think about that verse This is the the core, the ground of my own spiritual being, my own spiritual discipline, my friends. Because the truth is inside you, inside me right now, in this moment, is this treasure. It is the divine image and holy presence of God. But it's encased by our clay lives, by the the ground of our being. Because it's covered by the clay that sometimes disguises the power of Christ living within us. So... I recently rearranged my study. Now that the doctorate is behind me, I had a little extra time on my hands. decided to rearrange my room. Do you know why I rearranged my study here in the office? Because I realized over the last five years that out my window, there's a tree line on the, I guess, the east side of our parking lot. Out my window, around 8.30 or so in the morning, the sun rises above the tree line and it it, it just beams right into the windows of my office. And there's one place in my office where it just radiates. It just shines against this wall. And I found myself over the past three or four years um, making my way to that place to do my prayers. I just, I just sit and allow the sun to kind of bake my face. Because as I sit, I begin to imagine what if I am clay and there is deep within me this treasure that can emerge? What if all that is necessary today is that I allow the radiance of God's love to to melt it away? So I've put a chair there. And the only thing that happens in that chair uh, each day uh, is to melt the earth away. To melt the clay down just long enough to see that, yep, there is a treasure in there after all. And I encourage you, in just a little while, you're going to have an opportunity to do the very same tonight. To sit and abide for a while in the loveliness of God's presence. And perhaps to confess, there are moments when I, I just absolutely need every day. Those few moments when I pray, Lord, melt away the pride or the fear Melt away um, my tendency to want to make things happen, to to make people happy. Um, Melt away my false self. Melt away any tendency I may have to trust or rely on anything or anyone besides you. Melt it away. And tonight, Ash Wednesday, is an opportunity for you to do the same. And just a little while after the music plays and we hear Adam uh, sing uh, a song, You're going to be given a few moments to sit quietly. Music will play. And at the bottom of your order of worship, there's a a white space. We're going to encourage you to write down some word, some struggle that you have, some part of your earth and clay, some part of whatever it is that keeps you from being aware that Christ is abiding in you and, and desiring to live out of you. You may choose to write down a sin, a temptation, a scar, a wound. A prayer. It may be that if you can't muster um, the, the ability to think of any of those things, it may just be that you, you think of a word that symbolizes your consent to the presence and action of God in you. Yield. Yes. I'm afraid. And whatever it is, you write it down on the piece of paper. And then in a short while, you'll have the opportunity on your way to be imposed with the ash to turn that paper in and and let us nail it to the cross for you. But for now, I'm going to ask Adam to come and uh, to lead us or to sing for us as we meditate upon the words in uh, beautiful things. Let the words of the song speak to be a reminder to you that beneath the earth, the clay, the ground that hides it, There is something beautiful that can be made of your life if we confess it.
1: Wonder if my life couldn't really change. life is beautiful
0: you to take the next few moments in the spirit of this uh, this time of quiet contemplative space that we've made for one another uh, to reflect to sit and bake in the radiance of god's own love energy that is in and around this room but i do ask that you write something down a struggle a sin or even a willing heart a word that represents your yieldedness to christ and in just a moment Without saying any words, I'll rise to come to the table and the ministry staff will do the same and some of our lay leaders and and we'll we'll gather what we need to come to your section of pews. When we come to your section of pews and they turn around and give you the invitation, the signal, you simply come forward and you you rip off that bottom part and you you give your piece of paper to the one holding a nail. And then you stand before the other who will impose the ash upon you and remind you of our our common vulnerability and our common hope. And then return to your seat. So during this time, let's abide for a while in the company of Christ.
2: In Holy Scripture, we read, Turn toward your God in the confidence that through Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. This cross that's behind me is certainly more than a prop. The cross in our baptistry is more than just a beautiful icon and symbol of our faith. The cross is so much more than that. Turn toward your God in the confidence that through Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Those are the words of a somewhat obscure ancient prophet of Israel. But let those words just sink in for a second as we prepare to leave this place. Recognize those words for what they are what they really are. They're not just words. They're not just prose. Those words are promise. And not just any promise, but a promise from God, a promise from God Almighty, given voice by the prophet, sure. But the promise is God's to you, to you to you to you to you to you and it's not it's not just a promise made but it's a promise kept through Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven you see for God so loved you and you and you and you and the whole world that he gave his son and well that kept promise changes everything for all of us for right now and for all time your sins are forgiven after we sing this last song together we ask that you leave this place in sacred silence.
3: We join our voices once more, singing, I Then Shall Live, as one who's been forgiven. Would you stand as we join our voices in song?